0: What is up? I am Miguel Antonio, and this is the Live and Create Podcast. It's where I interview artists and entrepreneurs about what it means to live a great life and create great things. On this episode, we have Tim Shepard. Tim is a candidate running for Missouri State Senate, and I was truly inspired by this conversation, uh, especially as we talked about the idea of bringing unity, bringing understanding back to politics, uh, a really hard task, no doubt, uh, in, in the coming future. Uh, Tim also breaks down how the corporate world prepared him for making a difference through politics, and he also breaks down and and gets personal with us as he shares his story of embracing his own sexuality, finding and meeting and marrying the love of his life, and becoming a bonus dad to his stepdaughter. Uh, It was was a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy. Live and Create podcast. Sure. Now, I think last time I we were talking about connecting, you were out in New York and I think we were out on tour with Ben McBee or something. Uh, So how long ago did you come back from New York City? Oh,
1: God. Um, Well, I started in Chicago and then I was in New York. I was in New York for two years and then they moved our headquarters to Nashville. So then I was in Nashville for. I think two years. That's awesome. I don't even know. I don't know how it, much time has passed. It all bleeds week.
0: together for you?
1: And um it was two years in New York and then two in Nashville. And then we moved back home uh last well in August.
0: Okay. So, so. it's you're you're back pretty fresh here in Missouri, yeah. even though I, I think I was reading you grew up in Kearney. Carney, Missouri. I did, right? yeah. Okay. That I didn't realize. I, I had to go research that to figure <laughs> figure that out. Um, well, but Jesse James. That's awesome. Yeah, Jesse. Was is uh, Isn't it Liberty where he was in the in the prisons and all that? They that little town square.
1: Yeah, Liberty, St. Joe, um, up north a little bit further, Carney.
0: All there, all over. He kind of owned that place <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> Well, that's cool, man.
1: Yeah.
0: So yeah. you've been on a big adventure. I definitely want to get into the the Senate stuff, which I'm I'm super excited about. When uh, Ben told me you were running, I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> but uh, so it's it's been pretty recent, though. You got married and kind of became a instant dad, right?
1: Yes, bonus dad is what people tell me. Bonus uh, the dad official title is. I love um, it. So yeah he, Drake has an eight year old daughter. He was, he was married, um, young, grew up very religious. Um, they, they wound up getting a divorce and, um, he came out actually as bi. Um, okay. so like in his dating life, uh, I think primarily it's just more or less gay, but, um,
0: it was kind of a transitionary met, period in a sense. You
1: what? Um uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a transition period. It's like it's <laughs> just like culture makes it difficult to grapple with terms. Um uh, unfortunately it does. So, yeah, I think, you know, like we met in Nashville. Um he was the ops manager for 21C Museum and Hotel. Okay. My um, my company being newly headquartered in Nashville has tons of events and we had an event and met and was a particularly uh, tumultuous period in my social life with stuff that had happened at the firm. Um, I had, you know, built my whole social life around the firm in Nashville. And so um, when they sort of like stripped my chair of the LGBT employee resource group and some other stuff for some political action work I had done, um, my my world kind of like fell apart and Drake was there and helped me put it all back together.
0: Kind of helped navigate during that time in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and then the pandemic happened. Nothing to accelerate a relationship quite like a global pandemic.
0: Yeah. That'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) It'll, it'll, it'll put the acceleration one way or the other is what I, I've been seeing. It's like you either get really tight or everyone realizes like, yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. So it's But that's awesome that it's, it's gone so so well for you. And, uh, and so being, being a dad now – so I, my story is my, I was 29. I, I described myself as super single. And then I met my yeah. wife, fell in love, <clears throat> and she had two boys. And so I called it instant dad. Bonus dad sa- kind of sounds funny. fun. <laughs> but man, yeah, going from man. super single to, you know, I I realized I had to wake up earlier and earlier every morning just to find like peace and quiet. So, uh but but yeah. it's been amazing. Uh now we have four boys, uh which is in- insanity. Beautiful. Uh but what what's something you've been learning as as a dad, a bonus dad?
1: Oh gosh. Um little girls are incredibly special. Um, and they have like, you know, a certain set of needs. It's been the most, you know, falling in love is beautiful and dating is beautiful. Um, but I think like the love of a child, uh, like as, as you focus on that component of a relationship, it's like, I'm not just dating Drake, but like we're building a family and tie is a part of it. And the other day she wrote me like this little love note and said, I love you, Tim, or should I call you Dad? And it's like, oh my God! Like, (laughs) (laughs) start crying. (laughs) This like little human being who is growing and developing, um, and learning how to be in the world is, you know, forging this bond with me, and 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 like sort of that, the awe of the the responsibility that goes with that, and uh, and just the like, the love. In the truest sense of the word.
0: That's awesome, man. I love it. Yeah, it's a it's a fun adventure. Now, her name's Thai?
1: hmm okay. Thailand, her full name. She goes by Thai.
0: Thai, nice. How old is she?
1: She's eight. Eight, okay. So and we have her uh, in school in North Kansas City School District.
0: Nice. Is she doing virtual, it. hybrid? What's that look like?
1: She's going in person. They're doing a really good job in... We live in North Kansas City with all of the protocols so far. And that was a really hard decision because she's eight. And Mm -hmm. so child development, you know, they need social interaction. They need peer pressure. They need to learn how to be human in addition to, like, all the academic stuff that goes on. Right. And so it was really a struggle because we just moved here. It's a new place for her. We have to get established. And it's also in the middle of a pandemic. So it was really a weird decision to make, but we felt it was best to put her in and she's been really doing well and, and thriving there. So it's going
0: well. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, it is a, a oh, tough is. choice. Our, our boys are doing virtual, uh, but we know some folks that uh, there's just no way they could even pull off virtual we were lucky enough to be able to do it and uh and we we actually part of our decision we have one one child that's higher risk um with with some of the things that he has health-wise uh, and we also figured since we can do it why don't we pull it out pull our kids out of the way so that those who need to go in can um so but it, it's still tough because yeah we have we have a seven to eight-year-old and our eight-year-old's adapting really well but our seven-year-old he's really struggling uh, with it. And so yeah. we're there. We're yeah. working on maybe going to the school, maybe one hour two hours a week, uh, working on some in-person things as well, because, yeah, yeah. 2020 has been a year of, of really bad choice and a really shitty choice and then trying to figure out which one you need to That's make <laughs> <fun>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. for a lot of people, a lot of people. So so talking about uh, going for this Senate run, this is exciting. And uh, but I'm curious, so uh, newer marriage, and so Drake yeah. is your husband's name, right? And yep. how how is he feeling about it, or was he kind of encouraging you towards this? What does that look like yeah. for your relationship as you start this journey? It's a
1: really good question. I don't fully know the answer yet, because campaigning is really only just starting to pick up. Um Drake was very much uh, a driver in the decision to get into politics though. And so when the political action, like when Drake and I met, like a lot of our bond was like this shared deep spiritual sense of, of like who we are. And like, um, like, you know, we both grew up in, in very heavy faith backgrounds. Um, and he's actually an ordained minister. I was a missionary in North Africa, yeah and um, and so like both of us had this shared sen- sense of vocational drive, I don't know what to call it, to to do something for for humanity. had it since I was a kid. Um, and I, I pursued that through the church initially, and so did he. But we both feel um, that the impact that we're supposed to make on the world is actually not through the church, but through other other means. And mm-hmm. so that sort of like part of my soul was something that I had not lost touch with, but I was in kind of a holding pattern, so to speak, after lots of failures happened. Yeah. Uh, or not failures, but like a lot of life change. Um, in
0: the in the realm of making a difference or just in general?
1: Just in general. Okay. So after I left Kansas City, I'll go all the way back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're taking a journey. We're going.
1: <laughs> We're going to go there. <laughs> um, I <laughs> wanted to be a missionary at one point, and I was, you know, Aligned with an evangelical organization that sends uh, missionaries abroad, I was raising money with a bunch of churches uh, to be able to to do that. And the primary like mission method that I was about in North Africa was um, helping women find a path to entrepreneurship and and be able to build a life for a lot of like shamed women um, in particular who have a hard time. Uh, making ends meet. Mm -hmm. And so I really loved that sense of vocation. But um, when I started grappling with my sexuality and and the intersection of my sexuality and my faith, because I couldn't really bury it anymore. And this um, is happening
0: while you're actually doing mission work as well, right?
1: I was actually back home in the States when I really like, I was raising money for missions. I was like on tour going around raising money. Um, But I was grappling with something that I just, I couldn't bury it in my soul anymore. It just yeah. kept popping up. And so I, I reached this reconciliation, internal peace. Um, and when I reached that, I felt like an obligation because I had been raising money to, you know, say, hey, I'm good with God. Like, you're allowed to believe what you want. I don't care, like, I don't care what you think about me, Uh, God and I, we're good, Um, and so I came out, and... uh,
0: Even to people you're raising funds from, which um, I spent quite a bit of time in the church, and I can only imagine how heavy that, that could be.
1: Yeah, so I was very quickly disinvited from the organization that I was affiliated with, AKA I lost my career, had it taken from me. Um, And um, so that was like an interesting adjustment that I had to kind of get used to, Uh, like left me incredibly humbled on my parents' couch. And so I had finished my web design diploma, which was just a transitional thing. Um, But I, I had accumulated student debt and I didn't want any more. So I decided to start figuring out how to build a profession. I did pizza delivery. I got a valet job at a hotel. And then I finally got a job as a user experience designer from networking and and hustling within the Kansas city startup ecosystem Um, that led to being attractive enough to actually an agriculture startup based out of DC. So I went and contracted with them, which um, led to me desiring to do more with my career. So I started applying to other jobs and I wound up working in venture capital in Chicago for the founders of Groupon, Okay, Um, which was an incredible, I equate that experience to like, that's my Ivy League experience where I'm getting exposed <laughs> to like all these crazy big things. Yeah. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. I was able to match vocation to work by helping out with one of their nonprofits called Chicago Ideas Week, which is a TED style conference that takes place in Chicago every year. Nice. That's really about igniting a sense of wonder and uh, curiosity um, and how do we make our community a better place? So that was a really cool project to work on. And then at the end of my residency, I launched my own design
0: firm, which went really
1: well, had an insurance brokerage as a, as my primary client uh, right off the bat. Turns out working for influential people can be a really great kickstart. If you want to get
0: something (laughs) They can start putting you this way and that way. Sounds like Chicago was good Um, to you.
1: It was really good to me, but about six months into it, the insurance brokerage partnership, they dissolved themselves. Mm. And there there went my primary client. That happened actually at Christmas. Um, (laughs) Fun. And so, you know, we went for about three months and I was furiously looking. I had other smaller clients, but they were the bread and butter. Um, I wasn't diversified enough. And so wow, okay, living again with the parents. Um, <laughs> and uh, that time I was with my partner's parents and, in Chicago, and we pursued a startup. We set a timeline for ourselves to secure capital. We weren't able to get the customer traction that needed to happen, and I was turning 30 on the phone with my dad, pretty distraught at, um, you know, like just the up and downs of yeah. – of life and going from uh like a really promising future to like homeless uh it's an interesting journey to be on and my dad's like hey you know entrepreneurship is a tough journey it's time for you to get like a normal job now uh (laughs) maybe get off that track
0: and so (laughs) that's almost every parent they're like please just stop i've done different businesses throughout my whole life and yeah, they're like a lot of a lot of people have a hard time understanding, especially parents, especially when they're seeing you suffer, you know, going through what you're going yeah. through.
1: Yeah, So that was an interesting journey. Obviously, it's tough to be financially on the brink of a ruin. Yeah. Um, and so that's stressful. But um, I put myself on Hired.com. I figured out how to get to myself to New York City and I couch surfed on the app couchsurfing.com Brilliant. through a whole bunch of interviews. Um, nothing came of those in the short term. So I'm like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Now you're living off random uh, people's houses, you know,
0: couches in, in New York city.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, that was stressful. Um, wound up back in Chicago, um, trying to figure out what we're going to do. Anyway, about eight months after those interviews, my current employer called me up and was like, hey, can you start Tuesday? Uh, That project that we talked to you about, yeah, we need to get that going. So I'm like, be there. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, is that when you bounce to Nashville, if I understand? That's when I bounced
1: to New York City. Oh, to Uh, New York City, okay. Yeah, so... Wound up working for this big, you know, asset management finance firm. Um, It was just a contract project. The, you know, the big, the big thing was like the gig economy. And I sat down after the, towards the end of my contract with my former boss at, at my employer, and, um, I was like, listen, this gig is bullshit. You're going to let me into the same exact system that you're a part of, and I'm going to participate in, like, the profits of this firm, or we're, we're done here. That's like, awesome. And, uh, he really respected that, and so, <laughs> um, made, like, a formal offer, cleared the way, and brought me in as an assistant vice president, Damn. um, which, was incredible for me you know and I went from homeless uh for the god knows how many manyth time (laughs) to like you know a junior executive at a major
0: firm yeah this feels good Uh, from couch uh, to the c-suite and you're doing all right
1: it took a while to feel safe again or like stable again. So for the Mm. first year, it was just pretty much like, how do I secure my life? How do I do a good job at this employer? Um, and I, and I really crushed it, I think. Um, but again, that sense of vocation was missing. I was Mm. just like, I need money to eat. So here's money to eat. Um, and they sent me, they identified through their, um, diversity and inclusion program, they identify high performing, young execs that they want to groom. And so they sent me to this program without leadership, mm-hmm. um, which is an organization that works with a lot of big finance firms and and like big, giant companies on their diversity and inclusion. Um, and so that's where I like, was challenged again with, with my sense of vocation and and what am I able to do? And they taught us in that workshop, how we can move corporate levers and how we can like exercise influence and lobby and influence high level executives in order to make good in the world. Hmm. Uh, And so a lot of the equality movement and marriage equality for LGBT people actually was, very much like sped up by private industries adoption yeah. of LGBT rights within their ranks. And like, you know, they have a commercial reason to do that. So they're able to do good and marry that to their to their commercial well-being. But right. um, learning how to speak that language mm-hmm. um, within executive ranks and to be able to effectively lobby to to make the world a more equitable place to make your workplace a more equitable place, um, was like an incredible lesson. I'm like, I could get on, I could, I could really enjoy my career, uh, and, and find so much meaning if I can continue on this path. And so I loved it. That's when they announced they were moving the headquarters to Nashville from New York city. Okay. And so my department was one of the first because we built the infrastructure and sort of like help get everything ready so i went on down and became the chair of the employee resource group in nashville and essentially was a culture carrier for like how are we going to establish this new multinational finance firm in like a brand new city in a very very different culture Yeah, far very, less very
0: bible culture. belt i spent quite a bit of time in Nashville. (laughs) I love Nashville, but it is, there's a a bulk of the Bible belt (laughs) swinging around down there. So.
1: Yeah. So it was a lot of learning. It was really interesting, but uh, there was a lot of opportunity. The Tennessee legislature had this like shortly after the firm landed there. So like this major international firm is moving their headquarters to Tennessee and the state legislature is like, Hey, why don't we have like a slate of bills that are super, super anti-LGBT?
0: Come on. This would be Uh, great. And
1: and, uh, I was able to partner with the LGBT Chamber of Commerce, partner with the firm and the executives and say, you guys should make some kind of a statement and get other corporations in the state to sign on, uh, come on board and like Mm -hmm. say to the legislature that these kinds of laws are bad for business, Um, they damaged our recruiting efforts, uh, to be able to attract world-class talent to our world headquarters. And it's just not a good move for the state. It gives the state a bad rep. Um, so that was effective. Um, the firm made a statement to the legislature, the legislature, none of those bills made it out of committee. That's amazing. Um, which was incredible. I was just like, whoa, like the chair of this. Resource group and like effectively helping to lobby this big giant company that has a lot of influence uh, to
0: to make good in the world. I'm like, yes, right. this is great. So, is this a moment where you kind of scratch the surface, like, hey, this could go deeper, or or did you see that at first?
1: Uh no, I, I like, I, I think when the firm made the statement to the state legislature. I knew that that was a big deal. That was like a moment of me kind of having an epiphany of what's possible. Um, And I was really fortunate and really like grateful that I had been identified as uh, an up and coming person within the ranks of the firm on the fast track, really Mm -hmm. into senior leadership. Um, And so I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, So anyway, fast forward a little bit. And uh, I went, while I moved to the South, a friend from New York came to visit. And we went down to Montgomery, Alabama. And I learned a lot while we were in Montgomery about modern slavery and Jim Crow 2.0 and the prison Mm -hmm. industrial complex and voter suppression and everything that goes along with it at the legacy Uh, memorial and museum and I was just like just the heaviness of it and the heaviness of the south um it just like it really hit me (laughs) in the pit of my stomach I'm like how like how do we fix this like if the equality movement for LGBT people has been as successful as fast as it's been successful right how do we do that for everyone um and and how do we make the world function in a healthier way. And and I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. But lo and behold, (laughs) an opportunity presented itself. Um, how did it present
0: itself? What did that look like for you? Did someone approach you or I don't know. uh, It was
1: was just a moment. I was actually at a concert with friends Mm -hmm. just at some random bar. And some act, you know, like it was in East Nashville, which is like the more liberal side of town. Yeah. And um, these activists got up on the stage and they were there was just outrage. And I was like, What's the outrage about? Like, what's happening?
0: <laughs> like, I was drinking, what's <laughs> happening? Something serious.
1: <laughs> and they're like, Core Civic is evil, and the LGBT chamber should not include them as a member. And da da. da, da. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like What's happening? So anyway, I came to find out that the largest for-profit prison operator in the country that has a terrible human rights record, so bad that not even Bank of America will do business with them.
0: Damn. So and they like money. The state,
1: yeah. Like, and they <laughs> don't want morals. They don't care. Um, uh, but not even Bank of America is doing business with this wow. entity. The state of California, the state of New York have severed their contracts, with the firm but the firm's headquartered in nashville um so they they're having a loss of revenue because states are not doing business with them anymore yeah. major banks are not lending to them anymore and they they're trying to figure out how they can rehabilitate their public relations so they decided a tough thing the to,
0: they, they joined the lgbtq chamber as a privatized yeah. prison yeah. i don't even, i don't even understand that actually
1: I don't either, and neither did the <laughs> activists, and so it was outrage, absolute outrage. Right? And, you know, I went, I went the next day to my employer, and I'm like, guys, we have an opportunity to talk to the CEO of the chamber. <laughs> this is way lower stakes than what we did with the state legislature, right? But like, they should not be a member of, of this body. They don't belong. They're not compliant with our values. And, like, they're just trying to use the, the equality movement, which has worked so hard for justice and equity. And, like, how could we have a movement that's synonymous with equality um, like, allow ourselves to be marred by the prison industrial complex yeah. and modern slavery? Like, no. Um, and so... I thought they would be more receptive based on how everything went with LGBT people, but they were mm-hmm. not receptive. Interesting. Um, they they said the timing's wrong. We don't want to have a stance on this. I'm like, why is talking to the CEO of an entity a stance? Like you could do this privately behind closed doors, right? Uh, and nobody needs to know. And they just refused They and, and told me to essentially stay quiet and be out of the way. Hmm. And so that didn't sit well with me. Like
0: <laughs> that's not how you want to play. Um no, like <laughs> That I laugh because I, I love at,
1: it. <laughs> the legacy memorial museum was really fresh with me. And I'm like, there's yeah. no fucking way that I'm going to like allow this body to be tainted by like Jim Crow 2.0 modern slavery. Like there's people literally on fields picking cotton right now, mm-hmm. whose only offense was to smoke marijuana. Yeah. Like it's not all right. Um and so. The activist community was blowing up and decided they would have a hearing for uh, the chamber decided to have a listening event and so i went with my co-chair from the ab employee resource group um, and some other folks and mostly just listened a lot of people told these stories of all the human rights abuses that had gone down and um i decided at the end to stand up i introduced myself uh, in the format that everyone was invited to introduce themselves. Uh, hi, I'm Timothy Shepard. Uh, at the time, it was Gall. And, um, you know, like, I'm here uh, with my friends and colleagues from the AB Employee Resource Group. Uh, as you can see by the stories that have been illustrated here tonight, like, this entity, Core Civic, is not really compliant with our Code of ethics or our values. And so I read the, the code of ethics. Um, I'm like, you know, like bearing this in mind and bearing the standard that we as, as members hold ourselves accountable to in this body, I submit to the board for your consideration that Core Civic be removed as is a full. In good standing member of this body, and that they work with us on a consultant basis in order to fix their human rights record. Until they have achieved such goal, uh, they not be included as member. Hmm. And so, That's well done. Um, that got the board to thinking, and and then I also said, and you know, second, I don't know who made the decision to let this entity become a member among us. Um, but if none of the perspectives from the activist community that have been represented tonight are are present on the board, then I think that the board should be expanded to include a seat to accommodate that perspective to prevent this from happening again. Hmm. Uh, and I sat down, went on my merry way. Um, so that's all there was to that. Yeah. Uh, the board reversed the decision okay. to include them as a member, but I showed up at work the next day. um, And the person who made the decision to let them into the chamber didn't like having their decision reversed. So they complained to the chief operating officer of my firm. And I got the nasty gram email the next day at work saying that my behavior was inexcusable and not tolerable. And so... They stripped me of my, of being the chair of the employee resource group.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, used some pretty harsh language in the letter to <clears throat> silence me, which I refused to sign. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the end of the year, stripped my bonus way down. Um, and now, of course, the official line is they didn't do that as uh, retaliation, but they did. Um, that's
0: corporate politics at its finest happening right there. And it's interesting to me, you're standing up against what is actual horrible behavior. And they're trying to call you out on that, which is, it's something I think we've seen in the political climate over the last few years happen so often. So you're kind of living this there in Nashville at the moment. Yeah.
1: And what was shocking to me was it's in our commercial interest, as we've seen with black lives matter and everything else that have happened culturally since Mm. it's in, our commercial interests to be on the right side of that issue as a corporate entity. And I was shocked. Right. Utterly shocked um, at their refusal to participate in what could have been an amazing PR opportunity for the firm in order to win more business. Yeah. Uh, And instead, you know, creating a massive commercial liability. Um, (laughs) And so, so anyway, that was like a big, Big moment for me in terms of, whoa, like, my vocation, they, they've stripped me of it. Like, they, mm-hmm. they, they took me from fast track to senior exec to you can't do that here. right? And so I started, um, that's when Drake and I were just meeting and a lot of healing was happening for me in terms of that sort of devastation at, at work. Um, and we, we got to talking about politics and like how that would be probably a better venue for me.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> then, he, then he could just focus on those conversations you had right there in front of that council, which I actually, and I do want to get to that, hopefully, but just, I love the way you phrase things to, to impact people, speak their language, but, but anyway, so in this moment, Drake's helping you navigate like, Hey, there's this new direction for me.
1: Like, I've always <laughs> thought about going into politics, but I've never shared that with anyone. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was, like, impossible to go into politics. I'm like, how, do you, how does one do that? Um, it's like you just show up
0: and announce, so, I'm in politics. <laughs> like, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. I'm in politics. <laughs> Is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs>
1: kind of. So, so he activated that part of my imagination. We started wondering together how we can, how we can do that. Um, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movement really blew up, mm-hmm. um, which just activated me even more. Right. And I was distraught and upset at the lack of political leadership from either side of the aisle that was participating in the protest movement and listening to what these people have to say. Right. Uh, nobody's listening
0: uh and surprisingly seeing uh, someone like mitt romney is one of the few people out there marching and which was a whole i didn't even know what to do with that that was cool <laughs> but but yeah it's a lot of people trying to distance themselves from an incredible movement that's happening
1: coming right back
0: it's all right
1: got to get some power and so yeah um Nobody's listening. That infuriated me. Um, And so we decided politics would be the right path. And, and I'm like, but I don't really have skin in the game here in Tennessee, you know, like, Mm. uh, they'll just look at me as this like New Yorker who came down and wants to bring my liberal values with me. And like, (laughs) how am I supposed to like connect authentically with people? I don't have roots here. My family's not here. Like, and so Missouri is very similar to Tennessee, but like my roots are in Missouri. My mm-hmm. grandpa's from Gallatin, my grandparents are from uh Theodosia near Lake Bull Shoals. And my other my great grandparents are from from Saint Joe. And I grew up as a little boy, you know, going to camp in the Ozarks and so you know scout Missouri. camp. And like these are these are my people. I can talk to these people. <laughs> about farming i can talk to them about the ozarks like it's it's in me yeah um and so i just feel like if i'm going to do a career in politics it's really important to be able to connect to the on like that level right uh, with the people they're trying to represent and so we decided to move back and then we were looking and doing research on which race to get into and um the Senate obviously is a crazy race to get into um, because it's the United States Senate. It's kind of and a, kind of a of
0: big deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's 100 of them out of 330 million people. <laughs> uh, and so the reason that we picked that race uh, and the reason it's even possible to pick that race is is Myriad. Um Number one, the party infrastructure of the Democratic Party is empty. It's empty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there there are half of the seats of people who really are, like, on the ground running the party. They're just empty. Um, Especially, I mean, in Kansas City and St. Louis, it's like that, particularly in the suburban counties. And then you get into, like, rural Missouri, and it's like you can't even find... democrat and i'm like
0: i'm in platte county and you hardly ever see a democrat run maybe every once in a while a libertarian but i mean typically the ballot for anything local is republican republican and like libertarian here and it doesn't happen very often so i'm a believer in
1: like the necessity and the importance of a two-party system and the fact that like one whole party basically determined that huge swaths of the state were too hard to campaign and therefore just gave them up mm. um, that didn't that doesn't sit well with, with with me i don't think that's how it right. should be uh and a lot of people also think that's not how it should be so it's not to say that the party isn't grappling with that reality but there's whole swaths of the state where they can't even find people to run and nobody's present in like a county in order to be a Democrat amongst your peers and neighbors so that they have a face so that it's their
0: neighbor and I think I've even done it myself especially like with touring previously my band we spent a lot of time driving through the back countries of you know east coast midwest everything and you see whole different style of life and a whole different style of living Uh, but I've been learning more and more that maybe there's people in different counties that are more red that they wouldn't describe themselves as liberal. But if you present liberal ideas, they they are okay with it because there's difference between liking a policy and seeing your identity in something, uh, which is it's interesting. I'm really curious about how you spoke to the council in Nashville. And mainly, and go with me on this, it's going to be a little weird, but I, I love post-apocalyptic movies. <laughs> and uh, But what fascinates me about post-apocalyptic movies is when people are trying to rebuild society. Because you got all these factions, all these tribes that are warring against each other. And at some point they realize if we're ever going to get back to having society, we have to figure out how in the hell we're going to get along again. And I think yeah. what I loved about what you, what you were saying in the council, there's this way of like, I'm not going to step off of what I believe in. I'm not going to hide that, but I'm going to try to find a way to speak language. And you hear a lot of people talking about unity uh, right now. And, and frankly, there are some points and in some moments of the day, I'm not even about it. I'm just like, I'm, I'm so angry from things I've watched happen. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we really want to move forward as a country, as Americans, we need to find this unity. Um, and, and so that, that's inspiring to hear from you. What does that look like for you? What, what is, what is kind of your method, your approach as you move forward to bring some of that, that unity, some of that healing? We
1: need a lot of it. Um, and I, I haven't, you know, fully figured it out yet, but like, as I've been going around and talking to various Democratic committees, like a theme that I'm hearing come up a lot is, wow, look at how white we are. How do we, how do we bring in our neighbors, you know, our Hispanic neighbors or our indigenous neighbors? They're like, they're right over there. How do we like make them a part of our group? And it's been fascinating to me to listen to these really well-intended folks, like wondering how to be a neighbor. Like, right. <laughs> I'm like i'm like i'm like guys like
0: have you considered saying hi <laughs> start with some basic human things <laughs> but it's almost like we've made it too complicated in some regards and he, and i think some yeah and i can go off on a tangent but back to your saying being a basic neighbor So, like,
1: basic stuff, you know, because, like, I've been in the state since August and have talked to indigenous communities and Latino communities and Democratic white, mainly white audiences, and I've talked to Republicans and I'm like, how is this a mystery? Like, to just talk to our neighbor and say, hey, like, maybe we should hang out sometime and Mm and so i think what's missing in the discourse and the dialogue is the like a willingness of people to like look around them be aware of their surroundings and go say hi to a neighbor
0: yeah
1: and not demonize like you know it's easy to demonize what you what you don't see and so you need to be really intentional in a state like missouri to like say actually you know like a black person aka black lives matter that's my neighbor right and I love my neighbor um and so one of the one of the things that I would love to be able to do and the inverse side of that within the cities like we like to demonize um like the rural people are voting against us and and therefore like they're our enemy they're mm-hmm. not our enemy they have the same problems um you know like their schools are closed one day a week because they can't keep the lights on the gymnasiums don't have roofs they're closing hospitals and they have to drive two hours to an ER that's a death mm-hmm. sentence the average household income in many of the counties is less than twenty thousand dollars a year not the average but the median household income and so like they have a major and dire poverty problem. And they don't and that's a
0: great perspective for someone like me where I have not lived in that world. We actually just moved to kind of rural area um, out of the city. And but like I just didn't have that perspective that you're even breaking down to think about.
1: Yeah. And so I think a lot of what like this urban rural divide that's emerged in the United States is And the reason I think Donald Trump was able to be as successful as he was is because there's a huge amount of people that just like the Black Lives Matter protests, there's no political leadership. Nobody's listening. Mm -hmm. Nobody in leadership is listening. And it's the same in the rural areas where they have dire poverty and major issues that need to be fixed, and nobody's listening.
0: Yeah.
1: And nobody cares, and they feel abandoned. Um, And so what I think needs to happen is – we need to get those folks and we need to get the urban folks and we need to have some coming togethers. Right. And to see each other's humanity um, and just talk, you know, like maybe we need the leaders of the black lives matter movement from Kansas city and St. Louis to come down to rural Missouri, scary as that may be. And, you know, have this epiphany that like, whoa, we're in the same boat. We have the same set of problems that need to be solved and divided we fall right. and united we stand. Um, and the same thing with the rural people. They need to come into the city and they need to realize that cities are thriving, dynamic, beautiful places mm. filled with culture and uh, they're not scary. They're yeah. not out to get you. Like they're different. But the people have the same sets of problems as, as you're experiencing back home. Hmm. Um, they have the same plight. They need education. They need health care. Um, and, like, frankly, in this country, like, for the past 40 years, we haven't been practicing capitalism. So we have trillions of dollars in idle capital. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen in functioning capitalism. And it's <laughs> it's sitting at the top doing nothing. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, we have like on the lower, on the bottom 50% of the income spectrum, you know, like people can't afford to eat. And so hmm. putting food on the table is quite literally a problem for 50% of the population in the United States.
0: Yeah, and coming out of 2020, how many more people uh, that... It probably felt secure in 2019 are now in that same place, but
1: I mean, and when, I, and why, so wonder why like when the economy has grown enough to support the population, right. um, and like you know like there's a problem with with capital velocity. Anytime you have industries <clears throat> and and like an elite class of people, that are stifling innovation um in order to protect their interest mm-hmm. that's monopolistic behavior it's feudalism is really what it is yeah. like and if you look at um you know urban and rural missouri you have corporations like walmart or or what have you going in and like they're not based there and so they're going in and they're driving out mom and pop businesses and replacing them with minimum wage laborers and all of the profit gets extracted yeah. to somewhere else. And so that community isn't able to participate in the profits of the proceeds of their labor anymore. And so we really need wages to go up. Um, we really need taxation at, at the higher end, like the, t- the top 10th of the top 1%. We like, there's no moral reason why the top 10th of the top 1% should pay a lower effective tax rate than you and I or a McDonald's worker. Yeah, That's morally incomprehensible. And so like, we need to get past the narrative like, that when Democrats talk about raising taxes, that we're talking about raising taxes on like, the middle class. The bottom, <laughs> 90, bottom 90% of this country won't see their taxes go up. Because the bottom 90% of this country hasn't participated in the economic gains for the past 40 years.
0: Right. My wife uh, has scrolled through TikTok recently and someone was like, listen, if your couch, at the back of your couch, touches a wall, you don't have to worry about the tax, the new taxes for Biden. And I just, no way. I, I died laughing. But, man, I, I love, I know you got to get out of here at 10. I just, I had two quick questions for you. Um, uh, if you have the time as, as things continue to ramp up, I actually love to maybe have a few, few more conversations and dive deeper into some of, some of these policy ideas, but I love what you're talking about with unity. I love how even this policy and talking about taxation, your ability to break it down, uh, to where, you know, like I know people on the right or left, if you talk about those inequalities, they can say, well, yes, I see that, that is an issue. It's like, how do we talk about those things? Uh, but before, uh, you have to take off, uh, live and create is kind of the big, big thing, uh, of the podcast. And so for you, when you just think about, uh, living a great life, what does that mean to you to live a great life?
1: I mean, I think we've talked about it a bit through this podcast that for me, um, partnering vocation into what I do is just like the only way that I feel like I'm breathing oxygen um and so artists have like a compulsion that's inexplicable to create and entrepreneurs have a compulsion to to create Um, and like that's why we put ourselves through all of the Trauma and the pain, the yeah. homelessness.
0: <laughs> the couch surfing uh, for, for a long time <laughs> to find your...
1: But like, I just, I don't know how to explain it other than I, if I'm just like, for me, if I'm at like a normal job and I'm living, frankly, like a great life going on vacations and stuff, I end up feeling a sense of restlessness and I I like gravitate towards issues like the LGBT chamber and like, how do I, I can't even help it. It just happens. Yeah. So in a sense, purpose,
0: having a purpose behind that great life. And yeah,
1: I I want to look back and know that I did everything in my power to make the world around me a better place. Um, And if I feel like leadership is lacking, then... You know, if not us, then who? And why Why do we always sort of like skirt the need for leadership whenever everyone talks about how it's lacking?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's we like need someone needs to
0: leader. do this. It's lacking. Can so, someone get on this? Like,
1: <laughs> if we just talk about it and complain about it and don't like step up and do it, then who will? Right. Uh, and so,
0: you know, you just you can't really escape it. I love it. And so when you think of creating great things, what does it mean to you to create great things?
1: Um, So many things. Um, I like, you know, like the artist in me thinks that aesthetics matter. The architect in me is like, my God, the built environment is so important. Like, why are we building these like shit buildings that make people feel like they're in a prison all day long? Like, like, natural light is so important and your surroundings literally impact the psychology of how you feel, how productive you're able to be in your happiness. Um, so like, and then you get into the higher issue on, on buildings of like climate change. And it's like, we need to make buildings that function and we have the intelligence to do so. So why aren't we doing it? Like it's just lazy. And so I've always had this <laughs> compulsion to whatever we're doing, it should be like with this awe and respect and it needs to be the best that humanity is capable of. Yeah. And like to, Ill- to illustrate that, I did musical theater in high school um, and there was a lot of – like my frustration was like the sense of mediocre is like the, the there's peer pressure to be mediocre.
0: Yeah. If you step in musical- out and in- – people start, it's almost like they want to pull you back down in a sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I was touring colleges to attend to, we went to Chicago with my dad and I saw the lion King, um, on stage on Broadway in Chicago for the first time ever. And the opening song happened and my jaw like literally dropped to the floor because the excellence of it was, it was jaw dropping. I almost cried because I was like, this is what we're capable of. This is like beautiful. Watching all of these people collaborate together to create this moment, this shared experience. That's beautiful. Um, and that's so. Amazing.
0: It's like that. Oh shit moment of, I don't know if you're familiar with the talent code by Daniel Coyle, a uh, brilliant book. And, but it talks about that as they talk about artists, And they're like the people that go in and put in all the work. There comes this moment where when they come out into the world, everyone's like, oh, shit. I I didn't know that was even (laughs) capable. (laughs) And and it's that inspiration that happens beyond that, too. So in in a sense, I almost hear you saying the same thing for both. It's like to live a great life and to create great things. They both is essentially to have purpose. And that purpose is creating a better world creating a more inspiring world for the people that are around you is that a good summation of of what you're saying or
1: yeah it gets back to like a boy scout philosophy really of like you leave the campsite better than you found it nice like you were never there um and steward the the idea of stewardship and so um yeah like if we're not pursuing our best then that means that like other people won't be able to experience those epiphanies and those aha moments Mm. and so and like it's so much fun to produce it and to and to watch it come to life like
0: how could you not want to I love it leave the campsite better than you found it. I, I think that's a great place to end. Um, and thank Thank you. you for listening to the live and create podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review. The live and create podcast.